your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 11. And bear with me in the, in the whole just waking up in the craziness of the conference yesterday and peeling myself off of the couch that I found, my, I found myself making my way down to in the middle of the night last night. Getting ready, I thought, okay, I've got everything. I made three more trips back into the house after I had gotten in the car and halfway down the driveway. Oh, I forgot this. I forgot. And then I finally got here and I realized, oh, I never made a coffee this morning. Um, not that that's that big of a deal, but I'm used to drinking four double shots of espresso every morning, so to not have that uh, right now is, um, I feel like I'm in the fog. That being said, Aaron is gracious. No, 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 no. Don't, do not worry about it. I've already sent somebody on a mission, and so I am looking forward to a cup of coffee here and hopefully six to seven minutes. Uh, that being said, let's, um, Let's consider here, uh, briefly, uh, the first three verses of Hebrews 11. Now, faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. For by this our ancestors were approved. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. And also verse 4, by faith Abel... Offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. By faith he was approved as a righteous man, because God approved his gifts. And even though he is dead, he still speaks through his faith. We're familiar with this passage of Scripture. We're familiar this is the definition of what faith is, what faith looks like. If someone says, what, what, what is faith? We're trained to go to Hebrews 11. Uh, some of us have memorized it in the King James Version. It's usually the way we're taught as little ones. Um, and it's a very important chapter in all of the Bible. Uh, the book of Hebrews is most likely an oral sermon that has been recorded. And so the preacher here is getting to, in, verse, in chapter 11, he's, he's, he's bringing up his argument that it has always been by faith that there has been salvation. And he starts to, as he's pre- preaching to a Hebrew audience, he starts to do some name dropping. As you would go through the chapter, you would find what has been termed the Faith Hall of Fame. And interesting enough, he doesn't start with Abraham. He starts with Abel. Though Abraham is known as the father of faith, Abel, because he's Abel because he's working chronologically here, as all good historians do, uh, he wants to reference the faith that Abel has. By faith, Abel offers to God a better sacrifice than Cain. We don't necessarily understand what God had commanded by way of sacrifice of the sacrificial system. That wasn't really in place until Moses. But nonetheless, there was an understanding that sacrifice needed to be made to God. It's also interesting to note that sacrifice and worship are never uh, taken apart. And so by faith, Abel's sacrifice, that is Abel's worship to God. And he was approved as a righteous man because he, his righteousness came by faith, by an active faith. 
because God approved his gifts. And then what is interesting here that I want to just kind of segue into church history here is the last statement in verse 4 concerning Abel. It says, even though he is dead, he still speaks through his faith. What do you think that means? If any one of you would raise your hand and say, well, Abel spoke to me, I would think you're a, a loony. It means, yes, that's exactly it. It's that Abel, it's through the word of God, but Abel left a legacy. So that even right now, Abel speaks as we consider, if we were to consider his life, and it'd be a great to do a study on the life of Abel. What is interesting, not just interesting, but all people are building and leaving a legacy. You are writing yours right now. And the question that I would like to ask, of, that I often ask of myself and, and others, what is your legacy going to say when you're done? Will we be able to read and, and see by faith Kirk lived a life of sacrifice and worship? He was approved as a righteous man because he lived by faith. He received the righteousness of Christ, and though he's dead, he still speaks. Why? Because we remember. We remember the life, the legacy, the man. Insert your name there. Throughout church history, there are names that are remembered. There are important names in the history of the church. Though they are dead, they still speak. And how is that so? Remember, every movement in the history of the church lasts because of what? People write. It is often, and, and so when we think about certain figures in the church history, they devoted themselves to writing because their lives are only a short period of time. It is nothing but a vapor, but writing can live on, and writing does live on. <clears throat> And so we've talked about certain names. We've talked about John Wycliffe, Jan Hus, or Hus, uh, Martin Luther, it's a big name. And, and today, I want to finish up, uh, as we started talking, about John Calvin. And this is an important figure, and I want to kind of move through this with, oh, turn this on, with relative quickness until we get to the, the spot we had left off last week. But I want you to even consider, though Calvin is dead he still speaks by way of influence of his work, his writing, and the legacy that he has left for the Christian church. All right, so uh, if you weren't here last week, um, this is just the information we covered. I have copies of the slides if you want them. Um, but again, we want to move. He was converted to Protestantism in 1534. Interesting enough, you hear maybe a lot about John Calvin. He did not live a very long life, 55 years uh, at most. Calvin, uh, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, uh, is basically his, his life's work concerning uh, the Christian faith. Um, he was exiled, returned, and when he returned, he was, such, he was so committed to expository preaching that he picked up on the very next section and passage of Scripture that he, when they exiled him, uh, that he left off on. So he wasn't going to even start a new sermon series. He just took really a three-year hiatus. During his time of exile, he thought it would be wise and important to learn Hebrew. It would help him in his understanding of the Old Testament. 
And so, during his time in Strasbourg, while he was exiled from Geneva from 38 to 41, he devoted himself and taught himself uh, the Masoretic text of Hebrew. That is profound. I took a year of Hebrew, and it was like nails on a chalkboard. It was very hard. It was just challenging, and I had an instructor. I had an expert with a PhD in Hebrew teaching me the Hebrew language, starting with the alphabet. Can you only imagine in 1540, without an expert, a man devotes himself to study and learn a dead language that is not spoken. John Calvin is an absolute genius. He, his, his brain, his, his, his intellect, it, it is hard to draw a parallel. Maybe Jonathan Edwards in his mind, and his philosophical mind, but it is hard to compare Calvin and his, and his intellect and what he was able to do. Uh, with it, par- you could parallel him with the Apostle Paul. Um, he, he returns to Geneva. Um, they ask him back. Calvin is a pastor theologian. This is very, uh, very important to understand. Calvin, if, a, a true understanding, if you can find readings on John Calvin that are not biased, you would see and understand that he was first a pastor before he was some, and he was never an ivory tower theologian, as some people might believe. But Calvin had a very strong and pastoral heart. It is no wonder in seminary, that many uh, in pastoral leadership classes, you are assigned to read portions of Calvin as an example. As an example of, here's the heart of a minister for his people and for the lost. Uh, One of his famous quotes, we are to weep with those who weep. That is to say, if we are Christians, we ought to have such compassion and sorrow for our neighbors that we should willingly take part in their tears and thus comfort them. And so... He did. Um, Just a few other things about Calvin the pastor. Um, Let's see. Preached up to six sermons a week. There usually would be two to three on on a Sunday and a Lord's Day service in Geneva. Uh, Maybe two in the morning, a little bit of a break, and then uh, an afternoon service. And then there would be three preaching times also. During the week, Monday, he would preach on Monday. So uh, most people think pastors have the day off on Monday. Maybe they do, but not for for Calvin. He would preach Monday, Wednesday, and Friday as well. Um, And the weekend. Um, I think I shared this uh, last week, but uh, again, it's it's worth repeating. Um, When Calvin would preach, there would be in the front row, there would be five people with, with pads and paper, and they would be transcribing Calvin's sermons because one person was not able to keep up with him. And so they would have five of them trying to write these sermons down. And then afterwards, they'd collaborate, put them together, and say, okay, I think we got the sermon. And so that was the way in which Calvin's sermons were being uh, recorded because John Calvin never preached with notes. And so when it came to preaching, he would enter into the pulpit with his Bible. And so as people were, uh, the, 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 the notes were being recovered, um, and uh, theologians, historians, scholars were investigating these notes, and they would see certain texts of Scripture that he was preaching, they were thinking, wait a minute, what translation of the Bible was he using? The, so 
it took them two, it took 200 years before they realized and come, they came to find out that Calvin did not use any translation of the Bible. When he would preach from the New Testament, he would ascend the pulpit with his Greek New Testament. And as he was preaching uh, to, to the people in Geneva, he was actually translating the Greek on the fly to the people in their language. So Calvin preached his translation and his, his, his interpret not really interpretation, but translation of the Greek New Testament into um, the tongue there in uh, Geneva. He would preach in French. He would preach in Latin. Uh, depends on who he was talking to at the time. So can you imagine that? Taking a Greek New Testament, walking up and preaching in a language that is not your own native tongue, translating from a language that nobody actually speaks to the people on the fly. This is a, and so when it came to preaching out of the Old Testament, especially his, his uh, uh, sermons on the Psalms, again, it was the Masoretic text. It was the Hebrew Bible that he took into the pulpit and preached from. Nobody does this stuff. Nobody does this stuff anymore. And there's no need to do this type of stuff. But in that time, um, it it greatly helped the people and helped Calvin. Um, He was also willing to show theological flexibility in the name of unity. He helped to unite Geneva and Zurich. Zurich was under Zwingli. We didn't talk about him too much um, because I don't really know how fast we need to go. If I can go faster than history is unfolding, we will finish. But if I move slower than history, this class goes forever. So uh, they were able to come together um, unlike Zwingli and Luther. Uh, Zwingli was somebody who um, very much cared about staying united and was not willing to compromise, but willing to be flexible and say, okay, well, we don't have the exact same dotting the I and crossing the T on this view, but we agree on these 14 other things. So, as a result, Let's work together. Calvin and Zwingli were able to unite the Reformed branch of Protestantism. Again, theology should never be divorced from one's heart. I want to pause here on this because there is a false dichotomy that is, that is often uh, maybe certain rhetoric that is used in the church. And we talk, about, we talk about truth and love. And you have to speak the truth, but, and then we can't, but it has to be in love. As though we should even... I don't understand how we could really divorce it. I do recognize, thank you, I do recognize how um, some people can use uh, the Bible as a weapon. Uh, zeal without knowledge is, is dangerous. But when it comes to theology, the study of God, the doctrine of God, whatever theological head that you might uh, be studying, I cannot imagine the study of God without one's heart inflamed. I've never experienced it in my own life. So when we think about theology should never be divorced from one's heart. No, because theology informs the mind, inflames the heart, drives the will. And so it's what we know. We operate from what we know. But remember, theology, the study of God, whatever doctrine, it is not an ivory tower pursuit. But it is that we might know that our, that our hearts might be on fire for this truth, and then we go and do something about it, whether it be our own personal holiness, uh, intentional, active evangelism, and even most importantly, our worship. I, I, I think it was MacArthur who said that your worship will never rise above the depth of your theology. 
And so give yourself to the study of God, to the study of theology. And don't be afraid of, all oh, systematic theology. Yeah, some of that stuff might seem like tough sledding, but always understand theology is for the church to drive our hearts in worship, awe, adoration of who God is. You see, everyone's a theologian. Everybody is a theologian for one simple fact. You make a claim that you know something about God. That is a theological claim. So I'm looking and talking to theologians right now. The question that we must always ask is, are we good ones? It's not, it's not a matter, matter theology is for pastors and, and people in the seminaries. We are all theologians. Never to be divorced from one's heart. That is a false sense. If you study theology and it does not inflame your heart, there's something wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with the theology, and there's nothing wrong. And it's not, oh man, I shouldn't study theology. No, you need to see what's wrong with the disconnect here. I cannot study and consider and dive into the person and work of Jesus Christ without absolutely feeling crushed, humbled, and yet walking away with just such a sense of awe and adoration for what has been done for me. Um, Calvin also, uh, predestination, under the head of theology, a doctrine to tread carefully with. Calvin was one who, uh, certain doctrine, because predestination is often connected with Calvin, and rightfully so. He, he would he caution his, his students and, and his young disciples to listen. Careful to, to read too far into this. It is a great mystery of God. God's predestination, His predeterminative will, His decrees from eternity past. Though they be true, though they be right, you be careful to try and seek not to talk like you have a grasp on these things. Calvin held that doctrine softly, with great care. Now, that was the review. Now we enter into a few... um, um, pieces of new material. Um, let see here, okay. Uh, Calvin the Evangelist. Oftentimes we maybe not, we might not draw this connection, but Calvin was quite the evangelist himself, as well as he was one who was very strong about missions. This is important to understand because the, 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 the modern missions movement is still 200 or so years away with William Carey. Do you understand that up until William Carey, the majority of, of pastors, theologians, did not thought that the Matthew 28 Great Commission had already been fulfilled? And they did not see that as a missionary text. They saw that as a fulfillment done by the apostles in the first century to go. And they would say that the world was evangelized. The apostles fulfilled Jesus' Great Commission. William Carey is the one who, when we'll get there in a couple years. But William Carey's the one who who turns that on their heads and through a sound biblical argument gives solid proof that the Great Commission is still in effect today because to baptize is still in effect today and Christ's presence is still in effect today. Therefore, the mandate to go is still in effect today. He was thrown out of many churches for that in his day, and we would rejoice and lock arms with a man like William Carey. But 
That is important to understand because Calvin, before that, even while the paradigm is that Jesus, that, that the Great Commission is fulfilled, Calvin was a missionary-minded pastor. He, he, he encouraged his congregation to share the gospel, missions-minded. He would say that a good missionary is a theologian. So if he wanted to send out a missionary, he wasn't so, so much concerned with, oh, do you have a call? Do you have a desire to go? Well, then let's send you. He says, do you feel called? Do you sense that there is a desire? Let's train you. And so, which is a, a, a phenomenal thing to do, if you want to be a good missionary, you must have a solid theological foundation in which you stand on. Because the problem, even in the modern missions today, people want to go with the gospel. The question we have to ask is, what gospel? Which Jesus are you talking about? Be careful when people use the same terminology. They're not always using the same dictionary. So, here's a few numbers. I hope this will encourage you here. In 1561, 151 missionaries were sent from Geneva. Think about that. 151 missionaries sent from this one city in one year. I would love to send two from North Kingstown in a year. 151 missionaries were sent from Geneva in 1561. Here's a few other. And Calvin's primary target, he was a Frenchman. He wanted to evangelize uh, Catholic France. And so his heart was for the French people. And so in 1555, five Protestant churches were in France. Look at this number. By 1562, there were 2,150. By 1564, there were 3 million Protestants in France. Now, Calvin did not contribute single-handedly to this, but the missionary efforts of, of Geneva, Switzerland, this tiny little place, was making, a was making an impact through the continent of Europe. Calvin had a missionary training center once they would go through a few years of training, these pastors, and he believed that the missionary was to be a pastor. They would send them, theologically trained, and he would weep because he would know that they were going to die. They were, he was, they were being sent, and they knew it. They knew it. They knew to go to France as a Protestant and preaching the gospel of free grace, justification by faith alone, was potentially a death sentence. And I don't have the quote here, but I was reading it. And Calvin wept and lamented that in the de he had gotten news of one of his missionaries that had died, and he was just almost like Paul. Oh, that I could! Oh, that I could be that man! That I could switch places with him. He agonized over the death of these people that he invested in. Calvin was a man of great humility. He requested to be buried in an unmarked grave, and so it is true to this day. Yes, Virginia. I believe that is a little bit after Calvin, but he contributed to the rise of the Huguenots. Yes.
Yeah, yeah, the, the, and that's interesting. The Huguenots are the French Calvinists um, that were discipled and grown in that way. So, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good point. Um, so, so, so also with Calvin, requested to be buried in an unmarked grave. If you want to go visit the grave of John Calvin, good luck finding it. Um, also, he, he, received, he received this um, backhanded compliment from the Pope. And the Pope says concerning Calvin, the strength of that heretic was that money never had any charm of him or for him. Calvin could not be bought. Calvin could not be swayed. Calvin was a man of great conviction, pastoral heart. But most importantly, he was a follower of Jesus Christ. And that is important to remember. By the end of the 16th century, the Reformed slash Calvinist church became the largest expression of the Protestant faith. And there is another man that was greatly discipled from him. We won't talk about him today, but it's, under, it's important to understand that we are looking at a tree here. As, 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 as Calvin uh, was influenced by Luther, uh, though they never met each other, um, Calvin's a second-generation reformer. You see... Um, uh, Luther and the Reformation had already been going on for some time. Calvin's little. Look at his age. He's uh, 1509 when he, is, um, when he is born. So the Reformation is well underway as he's cutting his teeth, um, so to speak. But um, as Calvin was influenced by Luther and others in his life, um, he also influences John Knox and... Um, Many, many, many other men and women in the faith as well. Okay, so let's talk quickly here about what is commonly associated with John Calvin. And we, this is known as uh, the doctrines of grace or Calvinism. Uh, I, I want to um, provide a little bit of clarity on this. John Calvin did not invent Calvinism, if you didn't know that. Actually, Calvinism comes hundred and some odd years after John Calvin. Uh, we'll look at that when we get into councils, confessions, and synods in a few weeks, um, mostly in the uh, next century. But uh, Calvinism comes from the, the synod of Dort. It is a refute or a rebuttal against uh, five points from uh, Jacob Arminius, who was a Calvinist pastor in the Dutch Reformed Church. But Oftentimes, they're, because they're, the name is associated to Calvin, which Calvin would be very upset with. Remember, he, wanted to be not, he did not want to be remembered. He wanted to be buried in an unmarked grave. He would not want a system of doctrine to be named after him. So that's very important to understand. But just by way of overview, and I don't want to get into the weeds on this, what are the doctrines of grace that are commonly associated with John Calvin? Well, there's an acronym for it called TULIP, and it would go something like this, total depravity, unconditional election. I guess I could go slow with this, total depravity, uh, just the sense that man is unable, he is totally depraved in the fall, unable to come and to, to, to uh, with a moral inability, uh, Ephesians 1 or 2, 1, man is dead, unconditional election, meaning, the system meaning that under um, no condition of the man or the person, God chose 
the individual to be predestined, not based off of any actions or any uh, reactions, but it is under um, no condition. So versus a conditional election. Um, here, here's the one that hangs up almost everybody. Uh, limited atonement, also known as predict, uh, particular redemption. This deals with the scope or, or the power of, of Jesus' atonement. Um, it asks the question, to whom or for whom did Christ die under the doctrines of grace? Calvinism, uh, limited. It's a, limited's kind of a tough word. Uh, I, I don't like using that word. Um, but it's just, uh, you know, the died for the elect versus died for the, 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 the scope. Remember, everybody, everybody limits the atonement. Uh, we'll be very clear on that. The only system of thought and salvation that does not limit the atonement is universalism. Universalism believes that everybody will be saved. Regardless of faith, regardless, regardless, because God is that loving. And so the universalist says, God, the atonement is all powerful and the scope is for every single person. And so wherever you fall on this, um, whether you have a more leaning towards a free will view, then you limit the power of the atonement that is only powerful, and it takes power at a certain point. If you fall, if you're more in the scope of limiting the atonement, you say the atonement is all-powerful, but it is limited in to whom it is effectual. And so, uh, but if you believe in an all-powerful, unlimited atonement, you are a universalist. Um, So the next point in that is uh, irresistible grace. Uh, God draws the sinner. Sinner comes. uh, It is a grace that cannot be resisted. Um, And this is just, again, the system of the doctrines of grace and Calvinism. And finally, perseverance of the saints. Those who are saved will be saved until the end. Um, Another way is you can't lose your salvation. Those who are saved will persevere to the end. They might fall away for a season, um, and then a pretty little tulip to go along with it. Um, tulips are my favorite flower. I don't know if it's because of this, but um, that being said, so that's just, again, a, just a, a, really a snapshot. We will go into uh, more of the doctrines of grace when we uh, visit um, that portion of history, but I just want to make, it aware, make you aware. Calvin... I'm certain from my understanding and reading of Calvin, he would agree with all five of these points, but he is not the one who developed them, uh, nor is is he the one who brought it, this system of Calvinism to where it is presently or where it was really um, at the Synod of Dort. Calvin's understudy, the person that he turned uh, when he died, he turned the ministry in Geneva over to is a man named Theodore Beza. And Theodore Beza was a much more heady theologian. And he took Calvin's teaching, and he would take something like the doctrines of grace, and his, his stance was, if you don't believe this, you are outside of orthodoxy. Calvin wasn't ready to say that, where that you must believe in a reformed view of salvation, or you are a heretic. That was Beza, not Calvin. Calvin was willing, as I said, to have theological flexibility for the sake of unity, but never compromise. There are hills to die on. The problem is with a lot of Christians, they have too many hills to die on. That being said, let us enter into England. I'm excited to turn the chapter on the continent um, and enter in 
to, um, to England here. So uh, I will give you guys 10 seconds to look at the map so I can have a sip of coffee. I appreciate it. Ah, oh, just right. Okay. Ooh. All right. So, um, just to kind of bring us up to speed, give your brain a little break from all the information. Um, here is where Calvin's teaching was taking place. Here is where his missionary efforts began to spread through the missionary school of the Calvinists. It might sound like an oxymoron to some, but and then um, also we are taking uh, our. We're going to fly our plane of church history up here, and we're going to spend the next few weeks what goes on here, because this has a lot of bearing on our history, and then we'll make our way across over here with William Bradford and uh, the First Baptist Church in Providence and all those good things. But right now, we're turning our attention from the mainland here. Uh, the, the Reformation has broken out. It is widespread. Um, the Lutherans are moving their way through here. The Calvinists are doing their thing, and there are a few branches of Protestant Christianity, but you could still see the dominant belief is what? Roman Catholic. Okay. And so this becomes a continuing, a continue, a continued tension, as you are aware with history. Also, don't forget and don't overstep. We're not going to go into it much, but over here, it's just because it's not big on the map, but the Muslims are having influence. Um, when on this day, I guess we can, we, we can say that today is Reformation Sunday. And um, we're going to sing, as is our tradition, what song today? A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Do you know why we sing that on Reformation Sunday? Because Martin Luther wrote it. it is our, I wish we were playing it on the organ today because that would be very Lutheran of us. And that would, be, that would be fitting. But I don't think we have an organ player in these days. But when it comes to that song, I guess this is my plug for the Reformation Day, Martin Luther wrote that song. Yes? Yes, Elaine Blazer has had shoulder problems. But we've asked. But we're still looking for an organ player. Aaron, can you play the organ? All right, well, we'll get you practicing. Okay, with that being said, um, yeah, that, but is it everything with Aaron's theoretically? Um, okay, now I just lost my train of thought here. Okay, so, so Luther writes this song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Why? Did we, anybody know the history behind that? I'm sure Gene's said it before in the past. Well... At, at the time, over here, as Luther is in Germany, and he is, um, the Reformation is well underway, uh, the Muslims were pushing over here. And they were coming up, and there was a fear that the, there was going to be a Muslim invasion that was going to come through the Ottoman Empire. And on the brink of all of the turmoil that was going on in Europe and the, and the, and the thought of the Muslims that were coming from the, from the east, Luther pens this song. And it is a reminder. So when we sing it, oh, first of all, when we sing A Mighty Fortress is Our God, you have to sing that from the bottom of your stomach all the way out. Sing it like you mean it. That God is our mighty fortress. So in the midst of all the turmoil, there was turmoil from the south, from the west, and then this fear of the unknown coming from the east. Luther stands, writes this song, 
that God is our fortress, a bulwark never failing, a, 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 a strong tower, our defense. And so um, it's oftentimes in the midst of trials and uncertainty and controversies and troubles that we are driven the most to our reliance upon the sovereignty of God. Uh, that was the, the, some of the history for why Luther uh, writes this. Um, and uh, again, an, even another great hymn of the faith, It is well with my soul, with Horatio Spafford. Um, his family shipwrecked. They, they, the, the ship goes down. His wife and his children all die. And as the story goes, as he is traveling, they, they were going from the Atlantic to, to, to over to the, Medi- the Mediterranean area. They're crossing the Atlantic. The ship goes down. He loses his whole family. He was supposed to go with them, but business stopped him. And then so he follows along. And as he is traveling, as the story goes, as he passes over the area in which his wife and children had drowned in that terrible um, sinking of the ship, he writes the song, It is Well With My Soul. Uh, similar vein to Luther as he's, it is a cry from the heart. Um, and that's why we sing as well, because it is our heart's cry. And even if you don't know the song, sing. We're commanded to. All right, so anyways, who knows who this guy is? He's not related to me. He's not one of my distant relatives. He does look like he could be in Kirk's family tree, though. <laughs> yep. No, no, no. All right. So this is, I, I stretched his face a little bit, so he is, but um, this is William Tyndale. Did, what do we know about Tyndale? Anybody know anything about this guy? Translator, yes. Tyndale Bible, Yes. great. Martyred, yes, yes, martyred in a gruesome way. Sadly, ah, an English Bible translator. Yeah, he did the ESV, right? Okay. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So Tyndale, Uh, we're not totally certain about when he was born, roughly. You'd have to check the baptism records. Um, there's my, there's my, my stick on infant baptism. It was the way of having birth certificates. Um, and I love my Presbyterians. They just weren't ready to let that part go. Um, but that's for next century. Um, so Tyndale, uh, you can see he, he doesn't live a very long life, uh, similar to Calvin, but what's interesting with these men is that they lived a full life. Though they didn't have this long, drawn-out... John MacArthur's been preaching in the same pulpit for longer than Tyndale was alive. But what you do see here is that they made their lives count. They lived for something, and it was beyond their pleasures, but it was for someone and something greater than themselves. So let's give a, a little bit of background about Tyndale. He's important because he is a part of this big English Reformation. And he, uh, just again, an important component. Early English Protestant. He was strongly influenced by German Lutheranism. Uh, and so what happens is uh, 
early on with Luther's, right after the 95 Thesis, once, once the Protestant Reformation is clearly underway, once, there, once everyone, everyone starts to realize, Luther, that we're going to break with Rome. There is certainly going to be a break with Rome. We don't know what this is going to look like, but these, these kind of covert pamphlets, these justification by faith alone writings were making their way, and they were infiltrating universities. Remember, also, you've got to write for movements, but greatest places of influences throughout history has, have been in the universities. Um, in modern history. That's where you get a lot of all your crazy liberal stuff today is coming out of universities. But as the universities, because Luther is a, uh, is a university professor. Remember, Wycliffe was a university professor. Jan Hus was a university professor. They're influencing the students. I could go on a huge rant about education right now, and I won't, but the influence of students matters greatly. So, Oxford, Cambridge, they are religious institutions at this time. They're being infiltrated with the secret heretic stuff called Lutheranism, justification by faith, faith alone, Scripture alone. And so these, these rebels are getting the, 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 this paperwork, and it's starting to spread throughout England in the early 1520s. 1522, Tyndale is convinced of the necessity of an English translation. Now, remember, he's not the first one to do this, right? What about some people before him? Most importantly, John Wycliffe, right? Wycliffe has already been working on this. Tyndale is picking up on a legacy. Remember, Wycliffe, we talked to him as, I talked about the morning star of the Reformation. He's the forerunner, uh, He's the one who comes before in this time. So Tyndale is convinced of translation work. And this becomes his defining work of his life. Tyndale is the translator. And so in 1524, he goes down to Germany. So you see all this stuff starts getting intertwined. And while Luther has, in 21 was the diet of worms. Here I stand, I can do no other. And they were ready to kill him. And he has some political friends that sneak him out the back door. And as he's, as basically, they, they, they run him to the castle at Wittenberg. And they, 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 they hole him up in the tower because Luther is a wanted man. And so Luther gives himself, in 1521, he gives himself over to the translation of the German Bible. Well, this sets a precedent now. Luther is kind of like the guy that people want to be around. Though they don't agree with all of his doctrinal positions, he is a champion at this time. So in 1524, he, Tyndale meets Luther, goes to Wittenberg, and uses Luther's model for translation um, to, to, to begin his work on the English Bible. Um, also, what is interesting for Tyndale, because in 1516, Erasmus had just produced the Greek New Testament. He had, he had, he had gone back, because for the thousand years, it was Jerome's Latin Vulgate. And so Erasmus had taken, gotten all the manuscripts, and Erasmus produces the Greek text as it was written. Not, not, not in perfect, but a form of the Greek text. So Tyndale gets, the whole point is getting back to the source, 
Because a translation of a translation of a translation in time becomes very diluted and polluted. And so Tyndale, what is interesting and most interesting and most important is that he produces an English translation that is based off of the original languages. The idea is that we could get back to as quick, as close to the source as we can. When you hold your your English Standard Version or your Christian Standard Bible or your New American Standard. Your Bibles are based off of certain texts, but they are from the Hebrew and the Greek. Like Wyclef, when he does his translation, he bases it off of Jerome's Latin translation, which was a translation from the original languages. So, so Tyndale cuts out um, uh, one of the translations, which is important because things do get lost in translation. Um, and so, March of 1526, um, the English New Testament and the Pentateuch begin to flood England. He was not, he, he asked for permission. He was told no. And so, what does he do? Every good theologian doesn't always take no for an answer. And so, he does it anyways, convinced that this is what he is to do. Uh, Interesting fact, Tyndale's translation would be greatly used in creating the King James Version. Um, the, the, in, uh, you know, the people that got together in the early 1600s um, to produce the authorized version relied heavily. Actually, 83% of the King James Version of the Bible was based off of Tyndale's translation. Not, again, that was a translation from a translation or from original sources. Um, so, you know, the whole King James only view, um, there's a lot of holes in that. It's a good, it's an understanding that King James was a very used Bible and very important. But um, to look at that as like that is the only translation is a very, um, I don't know, I think it's a very ethnocentric English view of God and his word. Um, but that being said, the, those people relied heavily on Tyndale. You can see that in, in, in examples even in the book of Ephesians, but we're not going into textual criticism today. Um, so, a little bit more about his life and his daring mission. Uh, there, here's just a picture of the Tyndale Bible. Um, again, it's English, but you couldn't read it. It's old English. I've, I've picked up a couple of those books and tried to look at them. And, I mean, that looks like it says the, the gospel of, of, of maybe Mark. Is that, is that what it says? The go, is that gospel of, of Mark? I'm thankful for modern translations. Um, so, uh, in 1530, he falls out of favor with King Henry VIII. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about the Henrys and, uh, Henry and the, and, the, and the monarchy here in a minute. Um, but he writes about this book called The Practice of Prelates. And really what he's doing is he's, he's kind of condemning Henry or opposing Henry for his desire for an annulment. We're going to talk about the Church of England, so if you don't know what I'm talking about, just, just bear, bear with me if you do. I'm not just glossing over this. We will talk about it. But in Tyndale, so Tyndale kind of had favor from the king until this. Kind of like the, 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 the monarch has absolute power, and as long as you agree and you do what he wants, he's fine with you. But you'd say something he doesn't like, and now Tyndale is on the run. Tyndale will spend the rest of his life on the run um, because the king, if you opposed his annulment, you were in his way. And absolute power, it's the political maxim, right? Absolute power does what? Corrupts absolutely. Certainly true. And so Tyndale goes on the run, 
and he is discovered through betrayal in 1535. His friend, Henry Phillips, lures him uh, into a room, betrays him. He is arrested. Tyndale was wanted by the Catholics and wanted by the crown. He was a very wanted man. And so on October 6, 1536, in Brussels, where he was found, he was strangled to death, burned at the stake in a very humiliating and gruesome fashion. And why? The main reason is because he produced a translation of the Bible without authorization. We are thankful for the daring mission of William Tyndale and the precedent that he set. That he was willing, out of a conviction, that God's people need to be able to read God's word in their language so they can communicate God's word to other people in their language. He was willing to risk his life. And though he's dead, he still speaks. We are thankful for the life and the ministry of William Tyndale. As he is going to the stake, this is his plea. Lord, open the King of England's eyes. As I read about that, I couldn't help but just be moved at at the measure of grace that God had given him in his dying moments. Similar to what Jesus says on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So, William Tyndale is awesome, and there is a book series called The Long Line of Godly Men, and I love plugging books. One, because it is a very low-capacity way on me to get you to do something really good, and that's read, and that's read about those who have come before us. So there's a book series called The Long Line of Godly Men. Um, Stephen Lawson is is the main author, Um, and if you've ever heard Stephen Lawson speak, He writes exactly how he talks. So if you've heard him talk and you read his book, it sounds like he's talking to you, and it's kind of weird. But um, he has written one on the daring mission of William Tyndale. I can loan this one out. Um, You'd have to give me your library card, but I I don't mind loaning this one out. It's my dad's. So you can certainly um, borrow this one. No, we have plenty of these. But uh, if you're at all interested in reading and getting more detail on this man's life, come take this book. Read it. I mean, you, it's, it's not a big book. I mean, you can read this in a week. Um, and sometimes it's better than just watching TV. So read a book. Uh, William Tyndale and his life, really encouraging. I guess now's the time to do a little more book plugging. There's also the expository genius of John Calvin, written again by Steve Lawson. If you want to hear Lawson talk to you, read the book. Um, and this one was really encouraging to me. As I, as I started to have, it helped me to shape my understanding uh, of the pastoral heart and of the uh, preacher's mind of John Calvin. So if you're at all interested in either one of these, you can certainly come up here and take them when we finish. Um, and there are plenty in this whole series. Maybe you read one. Yes. Yes. He, he, he sought permission from a bishop. Um, oh, his name's going to slip for me. I could give you the name, but... Yeah, 
Yes, 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 absolutely. You are right on point. So Tyndale seeks permission for translation work in the early to mid-20s, 1520s. Now, we understand the timeline here. The Protestant Reformation begins its boom, not even its boom, but the, the beginnings in 1517. And so it's not 10 years in, and Tyndale's along with Luther on this and, and, and so there is no Church of England at this time. There is no Anglican Church. So there's the Catholic Church, and then there's Tyndale wanting to do translation work. And so what's interesting is that like two years after he dies, there is authorization for English translation, but it's political. It's not, it's not based off of a conviction for God's people. And so um, Tyndale approaches a bishop, and the bishop's like, absolutely not. And so he goes... But because it was not authorized by the king of England, um, he commits high treason for that reason. Um, and that's one of the reasons why Henry goes after him. Mostly he opposes the, the, the annulment, but he, he does this translation work without the permission of the king. And it's Cromwell and Cramner, uh, like two years after Tyndale dies, that they do work the king into giving permission. Um, but yeah, that's a good question. Yes? No, I wouldn't say the Tyndale Bible. I would not, in my understanding, it's not a political version. But it wasn't completed by Tyndale. We know that, right? So Tyndale does not do the whole Bible, actually. He does, he does the Pentateuch, which is the first five books. And he gets the whole Old Testament. And it's, it's um, Rogers and Coverdale who, who end up doing the completion of the work, which is called the Tyndale. And then there's the... Coverdale Bible, and then there's the Matthew Bible, but it wasn't political in that sense. Um, those men, uh, Cramner and Cromwell, who get the translation work, they used politics for their advantage, but they were godly men. They were men that, you know, if, I don't want to say if the ends justify the means, that's not a good way of looking at it, but um, they, had a, they had a cause for, for England. Whereas Henry, which we're going to talk about here um, in the start of the, of the Church of England, he doesn't like to be told no. And so if you tell the king no, he gets mad and throws a fit. And so, um, <laughs> chops heads off. Even people that he married. Yes, he, this, is a, this is a nasty reign here. Um, so, I will do one slide on this. And this is just dates and times. The Church of England. The Church of England, um, this is very important to the English Reformation. Starts with King Henry VIII becoming king in 1509. In 1527, Catherine of Aragon uh, had not borne him a son at this time. And so Henry seeks an annulment because he wants a male heir. He had, he had daughters, but he wants a male heir. Well, he can't get an annulment. Because in the Catholic Church, this is legitimate, and they're not going to do this for him. And also, there's some relationships with the Charles, the Emperor, Emperor Charles, and, and Catherine. They're related by way of cousins or, or nephew, I think, or something of that nature. And so there's still political work that's going behind. And so um, Henry seeks an annulment because he wants to get out of this marriage so that he could be with a woman that would bear him a son because Catherine had reached the, or she was getting older, and he was thinking, my chances are unlikely to have a male heir. So he wants out. He's told no. And so because he's told no, he thinks, you know, it's time that I'm going to break with Rome. 
I'm not going to be told by the Pope what I can do. He doesn't have theological convictions. He just doesn't want to be told no. Well, what's going on in the continent down below? There's others that have broke with Rome. You know what? I'm going to as well. And so, in May of 1533, Thomas Cramner, which we will consider him further next week, which is the Archbishop of Canterbury, he annuls Henry's wedding for him and declares the marriage with Anne Boylan lawful. Now, this is his second wife. There's an annulment, and um, he marries uh, Anne. Now, what happens in 50 or 34, the act of supremacy. And this is where the Church of England, I guess if you want to look at a time, Anglicanism um, officially begins. In the act of supremacy, the king is now announced as the only supreme head in earth of the Church of England. I'm thankful they worded it that way, and it wasn't the, just the church universal, so we wouldn't have another schism of who's in charge here. But now it is that the, the king, the head of the monarchy, is the head of the church. What's the problem here? <laughs> what do you call something that has two heads? A monster, right? And there is one head of the church in earth and in heaven. And it is Jesus. And if anyone says that they or any system would call someone else the head of the church, that is a monster. And so, a beast, I like that as well. Um, in 1538, once it's clear that Henry is going to be noncompliant, by just an act of because you can, he's excommunicated. I don't think that he used that papal bull for much else than maybe going to the bathroom with. But uh, he is excommunicated as though that meant something by 1538. And what happens here, though, with the Church of England, we'll leave here because this is fine, good enough cliffhanger, is that once the Church of England is established, it is still Catholic. It just doesn't recognize the Pope or the seat of Rome as authority. Now the seat is the throne in England. It's still a Catholic church by all intents and purposes. If you walked in, you wouldn't think anything otherwise. But what happens here is that the door is now opened to Protestant sympathizers. Now, now, let's start putting our timeline together. What's going on in Cambridge and Oxford in the early 20s? There's these secret papers coming in from Luther, justification by faith. There's this underground work that is happening in England. And now, over the course of time, Henry breaks with Rome. And through the university, as people have been educated and they start to grow up, they are in the closet. Uh, they're basically closet Protestants scattered throughout England. But the time is now coming together where they can be a bit more open because now there's a new church. And we kind of have some sway. Henry's no theologian. Henry just wants to be told, wants to be kind of told what he can do. And so we'll consider um, the life of Thomas Cramner next week because he is a foundational player. Not really his life, but his work. But he's a foundational player. He survives King Henry's reign, and he gets to shine and thrive under his son, Edward. And so we'll look at that. But the Church of England has been established, and it is Catholic at this moment in practice. But... Um, Actually, you know, we'll, we'll do it one more slide. But 
Um, so, 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 so Thomas Cramner and Oliver Cromwell, they received the king's permission to publish an English Bible. Uh, Coverdale Bible in 1535 uh, comes out, and that's really... Um, uh, uh, you know, a work of Tyndale's, and then the Matthew Bible. So this happens around the same time as, as Tyndale's death, but they received, they went through the right channel, and um, again, remember, Tyndale's doing his work in the early 20s. He's early on this work. He's, he's still a, an amazing guy for doing it because he acted upon his convictions. Now, as the Church of England has been established, and the king is the supreme authority, Cromwell and Cramner get in the king's ear because they're close with him politically, as well as these are theological men, more Cramner than Cromwell, but they are able to convince the king, hey, if we're the Church of England, we should have the people, we should have the priests speaking our language. That way, that way they are telling the people and instructing the people in the native tongue. Henry's saying, this is great. This will help us to be a, dis- this, is, this is a defining mark. This is a distinguishing mark of the Church of England, is that we are English. And so we speak English. We will teach in English. And so these, this, these English Bibles are beginning to be produced. And so by the time, as, as this occurs, and this is, you'll see next week, this is all part of a mastermind plan by Cramner that he had been working for years. Uh, as I, I, I really dove into it this week, and I was like, man, this guy, this guy is a genius. And he was in it for the long game. And so uh, the churches were required to have an English Bible, step one. And Cramner is the man who begins to push the Protestant cause. But he is, he's very, very um, tactful in the way he does it. Uh, and here's just a picture of the Great Bible. It was called the Great Bible because it was huge. There is, there is a Bible. If you would go into the, um, into the heritage room, it's kind of a mess right now, but there is a Bible in there that is, I, I swear is like this thing. It just reminds me of the Great Bible uh, uh, that was produced in the 15... Um, in the 1540s. So anyways, the Church of England is established basically because of politics. You will never be in a church ever in the history, I don't care, separation of church and state, where there is not political overlap. It happens. God has given three spheres of authority in this earth, in this world. And the, think of it as a Venn diagram. There are three circles of authority, God-given authority. There is the church, there is the state, there is the family. And, the, and, and so in that, each one has their own level of authority. Like the church should not tell parents necessarily the mode and manner in which they are to discipline. That is left up in the home. Those are house rules. Yeah, they're spared out the rod. Yeah, there are those. But there is overlap in some of those areas because the church is to instruct in family worship and how to govern the home and in marriages. So there is overlap where, you know, there are certain things with the state. We, you can never have a state and a church completely separated without overlap. The problem ha- and that we've seen in modern times is when one tries to take too much control of the other. And so separation of church and state, yes, but completely, no. Here's an example. 
We have a sign over here that says this is not a fire exit. Why? Because we are submitting to state fire code. We have a sign in the back that says this building capacity is 308 people. Why? Because we recognize there is some authority from the state. But when the state would say something like this is what you can teach, we would say, no, you've stepped too far. Back up. And if you don't back up, we're still not going to do what you say. And so I just want to understand, when we understand here, the Church of England is the state church. We certainly believe in a separation from church and state. But there is a sense in a Venn diagram, as it would, that all circles overlap at some point. State and family. If you constantly beat your children and you abuse your children, the state will come in with a service called DCYF, and they will take your children from you. This is where the state and the family overlap, and they are there to protect. And so, again, the state is not evil. We need to be mindful, and we need to know where the healthy overlap is. But we draw distinct lines. And so the Church of England is a state church, and uh, it's just that's the way it is at the time. Be mindful of that, and so we don't look back and necessarily, okay, it's all terrible. This is what they knew. This is how they lived. So I pray that you are encouraged, that you learned something this morning, and um, yeah, I hope that we have a good sense and time of worship uh, as we will go before the Lord here in a little, while, little bit. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for uh, our time. We thank you for uh, your history and how you have built and preserved your church to be a faithful witness throughout the centuries. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.